everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker, and today we have episode 206 for February 8th, 2021. And we've got an interview for you today, and it's a doozy. Uh, I'll talk about that in just a second. A couple quick things. First of all, quick news tip. Uh, we'll be doing news again probably next week because I'm going to do this interview in one go uh, instead of splitting it like normal. And I'll explain that again in a second. If you're a Chrome user, a Google Chrome browser user, make sure that you update right away. Um, if you're following me on Facebook or Twitter, you would have already seen my notice on this, but um, there's been some really bad bugs that have been found in that browser, security bugs that are being actively exploited. So you're going to want to make sure you have auto update turned on if you don't already, but sometimes even that doesn't seem to kick in like immediately. It's like sometimes maybe you have to restart the browser or close the browser and open it again kind of thing. Just make sure that you're on the latest version of Chrome because there's a nasty bug uh, out there right now that it, the bad guys know about and are abusing. So we have an interview today, and uh, it's quite the interview. It's quite the discussion. Uh, I brought Troy Hunt back on. He's the gentleman who owns the site Have I Been Pwned, which is a great security site uh, for finding out whether or not your email address has been associated with data breaches, a service he has happily provided for many years now and is being reused by several other services. And that's just one of the many things that he does. We'll, we'll find out more when I introduce him for the interview. But he posted a video blog uh, recently that I ran across that spent a good hour and a half, I think, kind of deconstructing and analyzing the whole deplatforming of Donald Trump and the removal of the Parler app and things related to the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Now, so, and I hate that I even have to do this, but here's your trigger warning. So if, if you're a highly political person, one way or the other, we talk about this and, and I want you to just keep in mind that we're, we're trying not to take sides on this. I will come clean anything. I don't care what party does it. Any, any incitement of violence or violence is wrong. And we need to do what we can to curb or eliminate that. So with that in mind, just keep in mind that, that this really is not a politically motivated discussion. Yes. It's a very politically charged situation. Politics in this country have gotten extremely emotional and I do not mean to discount that in any way. It's, it's, it's too bad that it's, it is the way it is. And it makes discussions like the one we're about to have difficult, honestly. And we'll find out it's actually a safety issue, unfortunately, uh, as we talk with Troy. But this is important stuff. And it, there's a lot of issues here. So I try to, as often as I can, as we discuss this, to bring in other situations, similar situations that are not this one, just for compare and contrast. And as you listen to this, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you may be on, think about this and, you know, if this were your candidate or your group or your cause that was deplatformed or banned from at the app stores, we're going to talk about all that in this thing. And it's, it's a thorny issue. And I, I honestly, I don't know how many questions we actually answered in this interview. We raised a lot of them and discussed the questions and discussed the topic. And it's a nuanced discussion. And I think that's an important thing to do uh, when these things arise. So anyway, I, I, you know, as you know, I do my best to avoid politics 
on this because to me, all of these issues, all these technology issues, privacy, security, and a lot of the things that we touch on should not be related whatsoever to politics. So we are going to get into the touchy topic of free speech and what that really means and what the real limits on that are or and or should be and how they related to the events of January 6th and the following couple of weeks. I will say that one of the reasons that, that I really liked having Troy on the show was that he's not a U.S. citizen. And I know we have a global audience. I, I'm sure the vast majority of the people listening to this are probably in the United States, but I know for a fact that many of them are not. And I know that Americans kind of get tunnel vision. They, you know, they kind of think <laughs> that the planet revolves around them. Uh, you know, and I've got some of those inherent biases myself. Um, and I try, <laughs> try to be cognizant of those. Uh, but I thought it was important to get somebody's perspective who lives outside the U.S. and, furthermore, has spent a lot of time in tech circles all around the planet and has seen the situation in many other places and is familiar with several other examples that are important to consider. So there you go. There's, a, <laughs> there's your trigger warning. I'm sad that I even have to do it, but uh, there it is. So I decided there wasn't really a good place to split this interview. I usually like to split these because they're usually long. And I you know, try to be cognizant of the shows running too long. So this one, though, I, I'm just going to run all together. It's all one big interview. And it's probably, I don't know, 50, 55 minutes. And so uh, with that preface, let's, let's get right to it. Let's get to our thought-provoking interview with Troy Hunt. Troy Hunt is an Australian Microsoft Regional Director and the most and a most valuable professional awardee for developer security. He's a blogger, an international speaker, and author of several online courses, and he runs a very valuable internet security service that we've talked to him about before here called Have I Been Pwned. Welcome back to the show, Troy. <laughs> Thank you for having me back. Um, so, you know, as I said, you've been on here before, and we've talked about stuff related to Have I Been Pwned, which, of course, you know, to, usually leads to password hygiene and, you know, how to avoid being hacked and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, originally we were going to talk about some IoT stuff because you had a really cool set of articles about that in home automation. But then January 6th happened, and uh, I came across your video blog about the repercussions of that event, you know, for users and platforms, uh, for the folks that supported the riots and the carnage. And, and I, I really like the way that you kind of methodically analyzed what happened, and I think it's a really important discussion to have. So I thought, you know, kind of diverted at the last minute. So I really would like to go through that with you. And um, before we begin, you know, for the purposes of this discussion, why don't you, you know, kind of tell the audience where you're coming from? And by that, I mean, like, both literally, like, where you're located and figuratively where you come from. And you've got a lot of global experience. You've done a lot of global traveling. How do you come at this topic? Yeah, good question. Where do we even begin with that? Yeah. So uh, I, I, let's start with the easy bit. So I am literally coming to you from Australia, as, as the audience can probably hear. I am Australian. I have spent a lot of time in the US. Uh, I've spent time in government in the US. I've spent time in Congress in mm. the US. So I, I probably have a little bit more insight than your, your average Australian. Uh, I, I dare say maybe a little bit more exposure even than your, your average uh, person in the US as well. So I was going to say that as well. I'm sure you do. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's that. I, like uh, most other people around the world, have been observing things from a, a distance. Uh, this, this may come as a shock to some people in the U.S., but there are places outside the U.S. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and um, and I, I say that with, with the utmost respect. But a lot of people in, in, the, uh, in the U.S. tend to get very, very centric on the oh, very, place. Oh, very, very. 
But I, I, I guess we're sort of in a situation where uh, due to the influence that the US has uh, over the world, not just due to their, their sort of e economic and political status, but due to the fact that so much of, of what we all use day in and day out on the internet is US-based, no matter where you are in the world, you get exposed to this stuff. Mm. You get exposed uh, to, the, to the politics in the US and you get exposed to a lot of the debates around technology. So I have found it particularly fascinating to watch this this concept of deplatforming either of an individual or of an entire technology platform mm -hmm. and I've found it very fascinating how that ties in into the politics uh, and also even just some of the basic mechanical stuff of hey if you start getting dropped by large tech companies how feasible is it to actually run right. something on the internet anyway right. So one of the th first things you discussed, and I think rightly so, was the true meaning of free speech and, you know, and, and what common sense limits that comes with that right, which are often glossed over. Given this specific situation, you talked about free speech as it relates to the First Amendment and the U.S. Constitution. So with that caveat and with that neither of us are lawyers, uh, um, I'd ask you to kind of walk through that again here. What, what does it mean to have the right of free speech and, and what are the legal limits? So I, I guess one thing to be clear about here is that I, I personally don't like the term, and some people might get upset with that as, as a concept, but the, the bit I don't like about the term is that it tends to get used as a very binary position. Mm. Uh, you should have free speech, you should be able to say whatever you want. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's really not that simple. And, and to be clear also, free speech, there are legal constructs around free speech. The US obviously has your constitution, your amendments. Uh, as we established earlier, there are other countries <laughs> as well, <laughs> and other countries have their own view on free speech, and, and there are fundamental differences, even between, uh, let's say, first world westernized countries, let alone by the time you start going to Egypt, Turkey, China, yeah, right. Iran, places right. like that. So th this whole concept is a lot more nuanced than just that what the headline uh, suggests. Mm -hmm. Now, I do not like the, the premise regardless of your political allegiance, and I think at some time we've got to sort of touch on the fact of, of how such sort of fundamental constructs of free speech seem to get tied down to mm -hmm. one political party or the other. But I do not like the, the, the concept when, when someone says that all, free should be or all speech should be free and you should just be able to say whatever you want. Now, we have never had that. We do not want that. No person in their right mind wants that. Mm. And very simple examples of that include things like inciting terrorism. Mm. Uh, you know, we have seen, particularly, I guess, over the last 20 years, a much greater awareness of terrorism and insightfulness that, that happens over, or incitement rather, that happens over the internet. We want to shut down things that are encouraging people to harm other people uh, in that fashion. Where it tends to get a little bit more nuanced is when we get into, well, was you know, certain tweets from the president recently inciting violence or not? And I'm sure mm -hmm. we'll come back to that. But I, I think we need to establish this baseline that there is not free speech in the context of you can say anything anywhere without repercussions. And there shouldn't be. Right. Yeah. And in fact, it, you actually, there's a whole Wikipedia article on this, which you referenced, which I looked at too. And I recommend the audience go check that out if they're, you know, you know, if they want to see some other examples. But I mean, you know, the classic one, of course, in the US, we always is shouting fire in a crowded theater. You know, that there are, you know, there are certain things that that would, you could say, well, I could say whatever I want, wherever I want. You're right. You can't. That's a, that's a concrete, classic legal example, you know, textbook legal example in the United States of something that's not allowed. Before we get too much further, the other another question I'd like to ask, and I, this is another thing that I think is also kind of conflated or, or brought in situations like this, oftentimes because they think it is a semi-cure for curbing some of these abuses, is 
the notion of anonymous speech. Um, you know, how does free speech relate to being anonymous or maybe pseudonymous, you know, where you can, you've got a name, but it's not it's a username, but no one can really figure out who that is. In your mind, do you think that speech on online platforms, you know, should have limitations based on whether or not you are verified or an identified account? Well, this is where it starts to get really interesting. And I, I think that we've got to acknowledge that in most debates, there can be extreme ends of each side of the argument. And usually each end of the extreme is the wrong one. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, the, yeah. and the right one as it relates to having uh, a, a civilized society and, and general consensus is usually somewhere in the middle. So that the idea that uh, you should be completely anonymous all the time and your all your communication should be untraceable and then within that you can say and do whatever you want, to my mind, is the wrong position. Hmm. And the other end of the extreme, which is that everyone must be identifiable and all their communications must be traceable back to an individual, is also the wrong one. Hmm. And we can pick many examples of each which demonstrate the point. I mean, in the latter, the, the concept that you should never have privacy. If... Uh, let's say it's it's a it's a medical condition you might have you know i mm. i'm concerned that i may be suffering from depression for argument's sake mm -hmm. uh, that should be something which you can seek out information and support from other people without it being tied back to your identity and it concerns me greatly that particularly in some parts of the world that that freedom and that privacy is very tenuous and on the other end of the spectrum as much as i am pro encryption and pro uh, privacy i want law enforcement, for example, to be able to stop people from blowing me up. Like, this is a fairly reasonable expectation. Right. Uh, and and I, I, I sort of lament when we see these headlines around things like this, particularly a few years ago, a lot of headlines around Australia bans encryption. It's like, no, they're not. That's, that's a stupid comment. And what, mm. what this related to was law enforcement here saying, look, a lot of the, the legal interception that we used to do in order to have a look at communications of of suspects who are possibly intending to do us harm are now very difficult because we have end-to-end -end encryption. Mm -hmm. We need to look at ways of legally, under the right provisions, being able to inspect the communications of people that might be trying to harm our rights and freedoms. Right. Yeah, I love to travel. And, it, and I've been around many places myself, probably not nearly as much as you, but uh, but it never does, you, know, you mentioned this already, but it never ceases to astound me how well people from other countries understand our laws and politics better, you know, better than we do in many cases. There, I would challenge uh, a lot of U.S. citizens to pass civics tests in the U.S., but I, which I think others from like yourself could probably pass easily. You know, before, again, before we kind of get to the details, we're almost there, but for this particular incident, can you give us, you know, your perspective on how Americans handle free speech versus you guys and even all the world? So what, as a world traveler and someone certainly from the security background and the privacy background, what, how do you see this being looked at differently from the places you've been around the planet? Well, I almost feel a little bit like the free speech discussion in the U.S. is a little bit like the gun debate. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, don't yeah. Want to get in, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole uh, too much, but I will say in both cases the vast majority of the rest of the world, and, and keep in mind, the U.S. accounts for around 4% of the world's population. You know, I hate to break it to you, but you are a very <laughs> tiny part of the world. Yes. <laughs> a very, very influential part of the world, but mm. a very, very tiny part of the world. Mm -hmm. And the masses are looking at this just going, well, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you thinking like this? Now, this is not to try and be disingenuous, but I, I think that it is important to understand, just as in the US, you get a bit of a sense of where public sentiment lies towards one end of the discussion or the other. It's important to look at that in the global context as well. So, you know, you mentioned my travel, just to, I guess, to give some context of where my perspective comes from. 
I've spent two years living in the Netherlands, three years living in Singapore, a year living in the UK. Uh, in 2019, I spent 243 days traveling, mostly to uh, mm. mostly to the US and Europe and a bit mm-hmm. in the Middle East as well. So I, I guess I've had a lot of firsthand exposure, including a lot of exposure in places like China too, to, to see mm. where there are different sentiments with this. And I, I think the thing that I that sort of sticks out to me, and I'm, I'm sure other folks from Europe and, and Australia would probably concur with this, is that we value free speech where we are very much, but there is is never the same sort of vehement public outcry hmm. when we feel that it might be threatened in some way. And the thing that I always find really fascinating with the US is it always comes back to the constitution and the amendments. Hmm. We all have constitutions <laughs> of one kind or another, and every now and then we update them. <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. is so, 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 so vocally vigilant about uh, we're protecting... Very, we're very the, proud of our amendments in our Constitution. <laughs> they are, but you, you, know, the, you know what they call it, amendment, because it changes stuff. Right. Like you might have other amendments later on that change stuff. It's like, let's not get too caught up about amendments. You can mm. always change them in the future, and I know mm-hmm. that that's not necessarily a trivial thing to do, but it is a reflection of how public sentiment changes over time. Now... This might be upsetting for some people, but you might have an amendment in the first place which aligns U.S. gun laws with the way they are in most of the rest of the world. Or you might mm-hmm. have an amendment which aligns free speech in different ways. I'd love to see some some uh, some legislation around things like how we protect the privacy of individuals' personal information. We don't yeah. have a, a, a good construct for that, frankly, in most parts of the world, yeah, right. <laughs> including Australia. So this is something that will change over time, but I, I just find it fascinating how emotionally charged people are about it and and what i find is when people get emotionally charged about any topic it it does make it very difficult to objectively have the discussion right oh yeah one of the comments you made in the thing that i thought was really interesting was that you said that that of all the places you've been the united states for despite being called the united states is really like 50 different countries yeah exactly and i remember someone saying this to me when i started doing a lot of travel to the u.s probably about five years ago and and I see that over and over again. And, and you know, like if, if you go to Europe, you, you are talking about dozens of individual countries and you can go over the border from Belgium to France and you see things that are quite different and the accents change and, and back in the day the money changed and things like that. Mm. When you're in Australia, I've just done a, a massive road trip in Australia, did about mm. 8,500 I followed that. Driving. That was gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was amazing. But I'll tell you what. From the very top end to the very bottom end, you could sit in a bar with a person from each and you'd have no idea where they're from. The, hmm. the accents are pretty much the same. The, the uh, I think the personal philosophies are the same. The politics are very much the same. Uh, one end has more sharks, one end has more crocodiles. <laughs> you know, <and> that's <laughs> about it. But the U.S. differs enormously. And, and one yeah. of the things that I think has been quite sad to see, and I'm sure you've felt this within the U.S. as well, is just how divided the country oh, yeah. has become along political lines. And now I think that gets interesting is how that division then extends onto even digital lines and, and the very premise that maybe some digital platforms are more aligned to one political party mm-hmm. than the other. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they just become echo chambers for the messaging of those people. All right, so let's let's start digging into actually the chronology of the events here because it, it was kind of a it was kind of of a progression and it kind of works its way through the internet stack as we like to say so one of the first things that happened you know was that certain people including eventually the you know the then president of the US were suspended or banned from some of the major social media networks like Facebook and Twitter 
actually, and this this happens outside the U.S. as well, including you had you had a famous Australian chef uh, who apparently was uh, was booted, binned, as you said, uh, <laughs> the expression that we don't use here, but <laughs> I, I picked up on it. Uh, so. First of all, maybe you know because because it is so charged here in the U.S. in particular, and we and once we talk about the actual issue, I think a lot of people get clouded. Bring that up as an example of something that's not in the U.S., and then maybe bring it back to what happened here. So in Australia, and and really the the point I'm trying to make here is that we we have a long rich history. We being a society, not mm-hmm. we as Australians, but we as a society have a long rich history of of uh, on occasion deciding that the speech of some people does need to be silenced. Now, we've got a, a bloke in Australia called Pete Evans who's a celebrity chef. He's been on a bunch of TV shows. Uh, his his views don't really align <laughs> with mm. the masses. So, so let, let's sort of put this into context. The bloke's a chef. As I understand it, he cooks a good meal. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> he has some very strong views on coronavirus. Um, mm. Now, he, was, he has been very vocal about his views of it only being pneumonia, not being a serious thing. Don't worry about masks. And, and it, look, at it. to be honest, it is a little bit different in Australia because we have just about no coronavirus whatsoever. And in a place mm. like this, nobody does wear a mask. So that we, we've got to be a little bit contextually aware. Sure. But uh, his, his views were, quite frankly, dangerous because we have had occasions where we have had outbreaks in Australia and we have had lockdowns and masks and, and controls on movements and things like that. And when you get someone going out, particularly someone who has influence that other people listen to, and he's convincing others to uh, not socially distance themselves, to not take precautions, to not spread a, a, a deadly disease, then that's a very concerning thing. Mm. So he uh, he eventually got removed from Facebook for a combination of that, uh, as well as things like he he shared a cartoon which which did have some pretty severe Nazi undertones. Mm. Uh, it's it's unclear sort of how strong his views are. I do lament the fact that we we tend to see uh, a lot of this person's a Nazi banners um, again applied in a very bullying fashion. Mm. Uh, I'm not quite sure where he is on the spectrum, but it wasn't a good look at the best of times. Now, he had sponsors start to drop him as well, and eventually Facebook booted him off the platform, and he went to Parler, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get back to Parler later. Oh, yeah. This was a case that had nothing to do with Trump, nothing to do with US politics. This was about someone spreading disinformation online that is out of sync with the vast scientific bodies that was potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason he got, uh, he as an individual got deplatformed. And, and again, I, the, the reason I put that in there is just to try and establish that this idea that speech is free in a way that you can say whatever you want without repercussions just simply isn't the case and it hasn't been forever. Right. So, you know, the the U.S. president was banned as well for, for inciting violence, among other things. You know, I guess it was kind of the last straw. He's been doing things for a long time. But what, and even Twitter, I think, and, and Facebook, and I think what they were kind of – they were doing for a while, they're kind of hemming and hawing because he was a world leader, not the least of which the U.S. world leader. But let's, let's, let's address that question. Should there be a different standard for world leaders than for other people? I mean, do, do they have – I hate to say it in terms of more rights, because I think the knee-jerk response would be no, they're people. But as world leaders, do they afford any differences? And and you brought up the case of Iran's Ayatollah, I mean, who is still mm-hmm. tweeting. And I'm sure much worse things than Trump ever tweeted. So now there seems to be a double standard, but should there be one? I think whilst we're, we're asking ourselves questions here, one of the questions to ask as well is, you, you ha- let, let's take Twitter. Yeah, you've got Twitter... 
Silicon Valley based company US, should they be setting the standards for communication in every other part mm. of the world? So if we take the Ayatollah situation in Iran, there is a very different set of uh, laws, social norms, religious beliefs. Should a Silicon Valley based company be setting the standard for which they communicate? There's a bit of me that feels uncomfortable at that, where mm. you get one part of the world deciding what regulations apply in another part of the world. But then, of course, we're on a global platform. And if you're on a global platform, the communication of the Ayatollah in Iran has exactly the same accessibility and the same sort of reach in terms of who has access to it as my communication sitting here on the beach in Australia. So I, I think it's important to sort of look at it both ways. I think the, the measure that's probably most important in terms of uh, when action should be taken is probably going to be around the reach. Mm. Now, obviously, Trump has a huge amount of reach. Uh, Elon Musk has oh, yeah, a huge right. amount of reach. And let's face it, he said some crazy stuff. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. <laughs> some, some consequential things, too. I mean, he's caused markets to go nuts and other things, too. Yeah, I mean, probably more financially consequential right. than anything else in his case. But, you know, then again, he uh, there have been repercussions for mm. some of the things he said of a financial nature as well. So, I, look, I, I personally don't think that uh, just being in a position of power uh, either grants you more rights or more liberties as it comes to a platform like this. But I do think that the extent of the influence is probably important. And I'm sure if it had, a, let's say I've got 175,000 odd followers or something, which is a tiny drop in the ocean compared to Trump's, you know, many, many, many tens mm -hmm. of millions. Uh, if I was to tweet the same thing as him, I doubt anything would happen because I just don't have the mm. influence. You know, people aren't going to listen to me like they listen to him. If Elon Musk tweeted it, well, that, that is an interesting question because, all right, he's not a world leader, but he has the influence. And I, I think Twitter's perspective on this, and it's very similar for the other, certainly other Silicon Valley based tech companies, is that the communication has impact. And if that impact is detrimental to society, that's when we start to have the problem. And, and I think that that's probably a reasonable measure. Yeah, and uh, you brought up several points there that are, and, and that's why this is so thorny and it, it, it's so good to discuss because it's really, it, it is a, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of dimensions to these arguments. I mean, for example, every country has their own laws and a lot of these companies being global, I mean, they're U.S. companies headquarters, but they're global companies and because the, the internet's global and, and a lot of them have had to tie themselves into knots dealing with whatever the local laws are because they have to comply in whatever country they're in. And some of those laws are, permissive. And some of those are highly restrictive. I mean, if you look at China and Russia and some of the really authoritarian places, they've gotten a lot of trouble for being overly restrictive in those countries, but it's the local law. And it's, it's yeah, it's, 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 it's a thorny thing. One of the phrases that caught actually just today in a conference I was at that EFF put on was that, you know, freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. Okay. So to that point, a lot of people make the argument that, and, you know, from, there's legal things, which we've kind of talked about. And I think would, I think we, I don't think anybody would disagree with the fact that a private company has the right to you know, ban any one person if they wish. It's a private, you know, business. But because they've kind of run amok, because they have they are de facto monopolies in their in their own worlds, even though they're private companies, uh, you know, their market dominance, you know, basically means that without access to their platforms, you are essentially can't you know quote unquote can't exercise your rights to free speech. You're effectively silenced. What do you what do you say to that argument? Well, there's there's merit to that, right? Uh, these are private companies which, on the one hand, should have the right to run their platform as they want to run it, set their own rules. It's a little bit like if it's, 
Yeah, if, if if you're running a restaurant somewhere and people come into your restaurant and they're they're, they're rowdy and they upset the other patrons, and then surely you, as the restauranteur, have the right to, uh, to to eject them. Now, of course, again, there are nuances even there, but I think to some extent that analogy holds true. That that the challenge is is that a platform like Twitter, if if we combine Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, that is a massive mm-hmm. monopoly, and of course there are other legal constructs. Uh, out there to try and avoid the situation where you do have monopolies which then become anti-competitive and and have huge amounts of control over anything. It could be huge amounts of control over oil, but in this case it's huge amounts of control over communication. And I I think that there is a valid point here about whether we want that to happen, Uh, particularly if we do feel, and, and this is where I think is a very contentious discussion, if we do feel that those platforms then align themselves to political parties, because do we end up with a situation where all the communication that people have access to, or the vast majority of it, is echoing the same message, and, and then you lose healthy diversity? Right. So when you know when these groups are cut off, and we're, we're kind of peeling the onion here as far as the the layers of the, of the internet, at, at this top layer, there's, there's these platforms, tw- you know, Facebook and Twitter, but there are just platforms and there are others. So let's get into, let's get into the next phase of this. So when these groups were cut off from Twitter, when the president was cut off from Facebook and Twitter, where did they go? Well, a lot of them went to Parler mm-hmm. and Parler has been an emerging platform that is very aligned around the, the right wing of politics in the U.S., uh, it has been around for a little while. It has had its challenges in terms of supporting organisations. But a lot of them did ship themselves out of parlour, just like I mentioned uh, Pete Evans, <laughs> that mm. our, our Aussie chef did earlier on. And I guess what was interesting there is that a lot of that was happening in the lead up to the storming of the Capitol. And, and then, of course, there's a there's a lot of, let's say discussion, because I do think there's some valid arguments each way, but a lot of discussion about how much of the storming of the Capitol and the subsequent deaths that ensued from that as well were coordinated on Parler, Mm -hmm. and did they do enough to control the incitement of violence on their platform? I think this is now sort of getting to the really pointy end. So Mm. is a platform like Parler doing enough to avoid the civil disobedience which thus ensued? Yeah, and that is in, in the U.S. That's a lot of this is wrapped around Section 230 of uh, I forget which law it is. It's always just referred to as Section mm. 230 now. But it's the difference of whether or not you can hold the platform liable for, you know, the the speech on that platform. So kind of the, the next layer, maybe almost a orthogonal layer to that is the smartphone apps. Like so, namely again another set of effective monopolies. And that is the Google Play Store on Android and the Apple App Store for iOS. Google and Apple basically pulled the Parler app at that point. They're not going to pull. I mean, Facebook let them go, so they're not going to pull those apps. But uh, so the, you know, they pulled the Parler app. So now all of a sudden, this this app had nowhere to nowhere to live. No one could use it or, or install it. So, do you view that as equivalent to the actions taken by Facebook and Twitter, or is there a qualitative difference between that sort of a takedown? It, it's similar. I mean, Facebook and Twitter are obviously removing individuals, so they they removed Trump and they removed one individual's ability to communicate. Apple and Google removed the Parler app from their respective stores. Now, of course, you can still get the mm-hmm. apps in other ways. It's it's not pretty, and it's usually doing things we really don't want people doing from right. a security perspective. Uh, but they effectively removed accessibility to the platforms. Now, now, to be clear, this is just the app, and there's, there's a probably valid engineering question to be asked around how necessary is that app 
when mm. you could load it up in the browser anyway. Mm-hmm. But regardless, having a footprint in the App Store is is, is a big thing for a lot of companies. Right. right. I, I think that the two things that are really interesting here is is the fundamental differences between that and the Facebook and Twitter situation is removing an individual versus removing an entire platform. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that starts to get interesting here is when you're removing an entire platform, it, it, it's not down to the communication of one person or the incitement of violence right. of one person. It's a combination of saying, look, there's a lot of this happening across many different accounts on the platform and the platform is not doing enough to try and combat that sort of communication. And then, of course, we go down the whole free speech rabbit hole again. <sighs> right. But th- that's, uh, th- that's sort of interesting. And, and the other thing that's very interesting then is that most of the speech we're talking about, whether it be from, from Trump or, or other individuals that might have been removed from those platforms, and then the platforms themselves, the, you know, the parlors, and I'm sure we'll get into the gabs as well shortly. When we're talking about Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, they're three companies. And then we're talking about Apple and we're talking about Google as well. And these are other, another two completely mm-hmm. different companies. Keep in mind, companies that compete vehemently against each other as well. Right. Yet yeah. they're all magically drawing the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. Now... Mm-hmm. I have seen a lot of speculation here about there being cabals mm, that are there sure, to sure. Oh, yeah. silence the right. And Especially push in the, the US. We love our conspiracy theories. Oh, you do, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> so, there's that. But you, you, I always sort of like to go back to the, you know, the Occam's razor. The, the uh, simplest explanation is, is the most feasible one. And the simplest explanation is that the speech which is being silenced, either by individuals or platforms, is just simply out of step with what the vast majority of civilized individuals expect to see and each one of these five different platforms which we've covered now has decided that it's their responsibility to make sure that that speech doesn't fester right yeah and you mentioned gab and that was and i'll just bring it up in this context because you know once once parlor started get having trouble a lot of people then went to find another one and that one was gab and you know who's who knows what'll be after that and gab you know it's it's yet another one and but the, the interesting thing about gab to me was the rant that the ceo of gab had on, I forget where he posted it, but I saw it on Twitter, but I'm sure that's not where it was originally, about how he's, I don't want to get into too much of what he said, because a lot of it's extremely political and even religious, but I thought it was funny that he particularly said that apps were evil, to your point. Uh, he said that um, because they can be banned, <laughs> that you know, he literally called the apps evil, uh, and he made your point, which was, yeah. we don't need no stinking apps, we can, you know, just go to our website. So I thought that was interesting, uh, bringing up Gab. <laughs> so you, you've said this as I've got Gab loaded, and, and look, I, oh, right, I honestly yeah. gave I gave Gab fifty fifty odds of surviving <laughs> at the time. And hey, I mean, so I, it's quite funny because some people who are obviously very um, right wing leading wanted to make the point. Ha ha, you're wrong. They're still up. And I was like, mate, it's a fifty fifty bet. That means I'm right either way. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh, from, from the from the perspective of me being right, I've really hedged my bets here. But but honestly, I I did I did see it was even odds in terms of their survival. And and you know, Gab's uh, approach here has been because they've had a lot of practice of being rejected by various different platforms, let's just go all browser-based and let's not be dependent on effectively the, the big Silicon Valley companies. Now, Gab is still alive. They also appear to have gotten on top of a lot of their, their reliability problems too. It's actually mm. loading as you'd expect a social media platform to load here. Oh, wow, yeah, because you're having a lot of trouble with that recently. They did. They did. They were up and down a lot. And I was finding it just really interesting to, to watch them struggle with, with the load. 
But the CEO you mentioned, Andrew Torber, um, one of the things that happens when you sign up to, to, to Gab is you automatically follow three accounts. You follow a Gab support account, you follow Andrew Torber, the CEO, and you follow Trump. Now, Oh, Trump, really? Yeah, you automatically follow Trump. Oh, wow. Um, which, uh, which I thought was just a really interesting, very explicit alignment of a mm. technology platform to a political party. Now, yeah. I, I understand people saying that the Silicon Valley companies are, are very uh, sort of left-leaning. I, I, I get that. Uh, that could be implied in many ways. It is a lot more explicit when they literally start you off by following <laughs> these accounts. <laughs> And now, as I'm spinning through, um, you tried to unfollow, but you couldn't tell if it succeeded or not. What did what did what you get from that experiment? I think eventually it, it did unfollow because I see okay. now that I'm only following two accounts. So I'm following Trump and <laughs> and, and Andrew Torber, which which may not be a good look for me. But my excuse <laughs> is the platform made me do it. Right. But to, you know, to your point about the the CEO's leanings, he is very very politically charged, very religiously charged, mm. and uh, again as as a as an as a non-US person, I find it really interesting how religious-leaning politics tends to oh, be. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, it, it is like that in some parts of the world. We're just mentioning Iran and the Ayatollah there. But for most of Western Europe and Australia, we really don't like to see religion make its way into politics. So that's yeah. that's a very curious. That's a very uh, that's one of the things that makes the US very different to other countries that are very similar, such as the UK and Australia. Yeah, and and I'll just and I'll just say right here with the, the caveat. I mean, I, on this show, because to me, security and privacy, and I'm sure you would agree, are apolitical. They are. It's not that they're bipartisan. They should be nonpartisan. These those are these are societal issues. These are human rights issues. These are basic technological issues. And so I I generally try to avoid that as much as possible. And in situations like this, we have to kind of bring it up. But I you know I would of course completely agree that uh, in the U.S. we we muddy this stuff quite a bit and uh, more than I wish we would, obviously, um, but it, that is a truism. Okay. So as it turns out, there are a lot of critical layers to the internet that uh, a lot of us take for granted. Um, we're, as we peel this onion back, um, in fact, a lot of us probably don't just don't even know they exist at all. And, we're, and here I'm talking about things like, you know, web hosting services, you know, AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, or content delivery networks like CDNs. I mean, these are behind everything we do, but most people no, don't even know they're there. And then there's even more, much more basic things, which you, you also take for granted, like payment systems, Visa, MasterCard, mm. Stripe. And so most or all of these cut off Parler and Gab as well. So now they're really hurting, right? And so this is where I think it starts to get fuzzy. And and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, actually put out a statement on this, um, as they are wont to do. Um, and let me just, I want to read a little quick snippet from here and then get your take. And so they said, we think the answer is both simple and challenging. Wherever possible, users should decide for themselves and companies at the infrastructure layer should stay well out of it. The firmest, most consistent approach infrastructure choke points can take is to simply refuse to be a choke point at all. They should act to defend their role as a conduit rather than a publisher, just as law and custom developed a norm that we might sue a publisher for defamation, but not the owner of the building the publisher occupies. We are slowly developing norms about responsibility for content online as well. What, what, What's your take on that? Are we finally at a level of the internet where the, the company should, should stay out? It, it is a really interesting discussion because, of course, that there is a point at which we do want companies to take action. Now, now maybe their position is, uh, uh, and let's just go to one extreme end of the, the, the scale. Let's say it is very ISIS-centric material inciting uh, terrorism on, on U.S. soil. You know, like we want that stuff to stop. Now, if that happens on an Amazon platform, 
should we expect Amazon to shut that down or do we defer back to legal process where law enforcement approaches Amazon through whatever the legal construct is that's required to do so and says, okay, you guys have got to take this stuff offline. It, it is a really interesting dilemma because I, I think this, this also possibly ties into this big cultural shift that we've seen in recent years around things like cancel culture as well, where we get, mm-hmm. we get a, a, a momentum of individuals who have enough voice and enough influence to apply pressure to organizations to could be anything from drop sponsorship, like in the Pete Evans situation, to drop an entire platform. Now, I, I, I can sort of see the, ch- the challenge both ways. I can see the likes of, of Amazon. I think Cloudflare is probably the really interesting one to yeah. talk about mm-hmm. here. Having to respond because it, it is detrimental to business. They they have shareholders, you know, like they're trying to actually work in their best interest. And if there's a growing momentum of dissent about one of their customers, then that is an interesting position to take. But I, I also, and, and this probably now starts to speak to uh, Matthew Prince's position, the CEO of Cloudflare, I also don't like the, the idea that a private company can somehow have enough pressure applied on them to kill off an otherwise legally operating service. I think Mm. that that puts private enterprises and individuals such as Matthew in an extremely difficult position. Yeah, and like, uh, what was it? The, um, what was that? Storm, not Stormfront, uh, Daily Stormer? Daily Stormer. That was was a classic case. And why don't you relate it to that? Because I know we talked about that in your thing too. Yeah, so look, this this really blew up in, in 2017. And I, I remember at the time being a, a massive proponent of uh, Cloudflare's platform, knowing Matthew and others personally as well. Mm-hmm. I remember this sort of blowing up in 2017 where the Daily Stormer is, is was an outright white supremacist website. Not not sort of the, the thing where we say, look, this person's a Nazi because of one or two things they said. It's like this was the whole <laughs> MO of the service. Mm-hmm. And... For most people out there, this is this is a place that harboured recalcitrant views. Now, the, ultimately, the Daily Stormer had a web host. I can't remember who the web host was, but then they sat behind Cloudflare, and Cloudflare is not a host. It's a reverse proxy. It makes the traffic available, and a lot of Matthew's position on this was, look, if people don't like this, then take down the host. Uh, we mm-hmm. literally just support the traffic, but... Mm-hmm. The reality that he couldn't escape as well is that Cloudflare had the power to have this service live or die. Because when you no longer have the DDoS-style protection that Cloudflare provides, let alone all the caching and optimization and everything else that allows infrastructure to absorb huge amounts of legitimate traffic, the service dies. And and he eventually got to the point where he said he got up one day and decided to kill the service. And and his position was that one individual really shouldn't have the power to do that. And 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 I do agree with him on that. Now I would have liked to have seen a legal construct mm. to take that service down. I would have loved to have seen them get a letter, you know, right, a letter yeah. from a letter from the court going, okay, under section such and such, uh, you guys now need to turn off the power to this service, and and that's great. And I think that they would have been very happy to do that. But it does sit uncomfortably because then we get back to this whole freedom of speech thing and all the rest of it. And do we really want an individual company making that decision about whether or not to continue supporting the platform? That feels very uncomfortable. Yeah, and and I agree. And I, it, you know, personally, I kind of this seems to me where it needs to get to the point where, and it's actually really you brought up cancel culture, and this this really does kind of feel like it's just a, it's just an extension of cancel culture when it's. It, 
being pressured, you think of these big companies that it's funny that they get pressure, but they do. It's certainly when it starts coming to advertising and customers and things like that, and where they can feel the peer pressure too. And and even Jack Dorsey from Twitter, I think I basically said that he acknowledged that, you know, even though I he did what he did out of conscience or whatever for their own reasons, he knew that by you know, as such a big influential company, by them doing it, it's, it's going to have a knock on effect. It's going to, you know, others will then feel more pressure to kind of go along, which they did. And it, so it does kind of really feel like it in a, you know, global cancel culture kind of a thing. But to your point, it was kind of grassroots driven. I mean, it was, it was, it was driven by enough people getting upset at them and threatening to take their business elsewhere or to stop advertising or, uh, or whatever kind of, you know, vocal campaigns they did that kind of brought this about as opposed to, legal action. It was, it was, it was not something that was where they could just be a dumb conduit and sit there and wait, like you said, until somebody with authority, you know, like legal authority actually came to them and asked them to do it. It was, it was, they were kind of forced to do it because of backlash. Yeah, precisely. And, and I, I think that there's a, a valid argument to be made here. If, if we take the Capitol building storming situation where surely if there was genuine incitement of violence, there must be legal constructs in order to deal with that. Yeah. Why, why do we end up in a situation where a judgment decision, which could be influenced by political allegiances, has to be made on behalf of those running the platform? If it's genuine incitement of violence, is there not a legal construct or should there not be a legal construct? Maybe right. you need another amendment in there somewhere <laughs> to be able to, to, be able to uh, forcibly take that down. And surely under that banner, you get everything from ISIS through to call it white supremacy or whatever other banner we put on it that encourages humans to do harm to fellow humans. Yeah. Now, there's some other interesting aspects of this, which you brought up as well, that I want to delve into. One of them is that, you know, when this was all going down, and right, but when it was kind of, the writing was on the wall that the parlor was going to be kind of cut off at the knees, there was a group of, and I think they called themselves hackers, and even you danced around this, the word a little bit because you didn't like the use, but who took it upon themselves within 24 hours before this thing went down to download massive, massive amounts of data from Parler, uh, you know, tens of terabytes, I think is what they claimed that they had, uh, and then mm. turned around, then turned around and made all that data publicly available. So, you know, and this data has been used, I mean, to identify a lot of the riders in the Capitol. I mean, because of course these guys were, you know, not the brightest bulbs, we were documenting <laughs> everything they did, uh, you know, uh, and saving for eternity because the internet's forever. And it, it, you know, that was used to, you know, find a lot of these people. But um, do you think that, you know, was that an ethical thing for these people to do? Or, you know, again, with a caveat we're, that we're not lawyers, would you think it was a legal thing to do? It is fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, boy, boy, where do you even begin on this? <laughs> I, I, but maybe we start with the basics. So I, I saw lots of disinformation around this. And, and honestly, like one of the big, big problems we have with the world today, and, and let's say this has been a big problem, I'd say probably over the last four and a half years in particular, is establishing what information you can trust. You know, what mm. can you take at face value? What do you need to go and you know, independently verify or collect different opinions from? Uh, and mind you, which of it just simply supports your own confirmation bias and then you mm. echo and the whole thing spreads. Yep. And part of the disinformation around this exercise was headlines around hacking as a generalized term, but hacking more specifically in terms of getting access to things like identity verification documents out of parlor such as scans of driver's licenses mm. now it looks like that never happened 
So it looks hmm. like there was never any information around things like identity documents which were which were illegally obtained by circumventing authorization controls, for example, which would be a pretty good definition of hacking. Hmm. So what appears to have happened here is the scraping of publicly accessible information. So hmm. data which was published to the internet and subsequently downloaded. So mechanically, that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, there's then a question of should that have happened? It would almost certainly breach the terms and services of power. Right. If we think back to things like Cambridge Analytica yep. and Facebook, yep. how did we all feel about that? You know, right, not right. so good. It's like I put my information on Facebook expecting it to be used in this way. People took it and they used it in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I can understand, in just the same way as I do with Cambridge Analytica, people feeling a bit upset about their parlor data being mm-hmm. used in that way. The, the, the concern I then have, and we go back to the cancel culture thing, and if we put it a little bit more disingenuously, uh, pitchfork-wielding brigades of, <laughs> <laughs> of vigilantes, mm-hmm. I, I, I do worry a little bit about the, the power that people have to take this data and infer things which could then be detrimental to the individuals. And, and again, mm-hmm. we, we have this spectrum. These things are always a spectrum. Now, mm-hmm. at the one end of the spectrum... We have people marching through the Capitol building, f- filming themselves committing crimes. Right. <laughs> now, yeah. I, I still find that funny. But, you know, look, that's at one end of the spectrum. Now, mm-hmm. there would have been other people uh, outside the building in public grounds sharing information on Parler. And the concern that I have is that you, you start to sort of bundle everyone up. And we have mm. seen time and time again brigades of individuals targeting other people online sometimes sometimes people who by any reasonable measure really deserve it but other times people who end up getting caught as collateral damage Mm -hmm. and that the fact that now all of this data is out there people no longer have control over the information that they posted Mm -hmm. and it's being used to infer things which could be very damaging to them Mm -hmm. that that is a little bit of a concern now also, frankly, this is where just, just a bit of, uh, I guess, fundamental cyber awareness, to, to use the C word probably for the first time in this podcast, <laughs> need, need to be present. It's like, and this is a discussion I'm having particularly with my son who's 11 years old now. It's like, mate, everything you put on the internet is pretty much going to be there forever. That's the yep. assumption that you have to work on. And you'd have to wonder for, for people turning up in that location with knowledge of what was going to happen. And if you're on Parley, you probably had a good idea yeah, of what was, right. you know, what, what was being implied. Yeah, that probably wasn't a very smart thing to do either. Right. Um, so another thing that was brought up and is often brought up in situations like this, though this is a, a huge, a huge example we will never soon forget. But many people say that, you know, cutting these people, these groups off from the major platforms will, quote, unquote, drive them underground. We'll just drive them underground. And, and you know, and they'll go to... You know, fully end-to-end encrypted systems like Signal or Telegram or Tor, uh, or you know, or something brand new. You know, there's, there's going to be something new at some point too. And by doing so, then we kind of lose the ability to keep an eye on these guys. What do you think of that? Well, f- for the sake of simplicity, let's assume that the people that we're talking about here are people who were genuinely inciting violence. That, for the most part, most of society would like to not have uh, inciting that violence and influencing others, driving them underground is good by <laughs> any reasonable measure it's good because what we're trying to do is, is not necessarily stop them from expressing their views but we're trying to stop them from influencing other people with those views hmm. now i'll give you a good example of this i've got a, a good mate in fact i had a coffee with him this morning right before this and he asked me recently he said oh I'm a little bit worried about this 5G and I'm a bit worried about the vaccines you know like mm. I want to know what's in the vaccine for coronavirus before I take it and I sort of <laughs> 
Mate, you run a restaurant, you flip pizzas, you know absolutely nothing about vaccines. What are you going to conclude after you know, for example, that there is some mercury in it? Are you going to get on the Google and you're going to search for mercury and you're going to find all of this stuff about people going, well, you shouldn't take the vaccine because it's got mercury in it? Or are you going to go back and flip pizzas and let people who know what they're talking about actually communicate what's best for society? Now, this mate of mine... If we drive the crazy underground and we drive it into encrypted end-to-end channels, which are accessible by people who are aware of those channels and specifically tune into those channels, but aren't faced with it when they're simply flicking through Facebook trying to see which of their mates have been down to the beach over the weekend, that massively decreases the influence of those Mm. channels. And even when we talk about things like services going to, to say, behind tour, that's still observable. We can still have platforms and communities there that can be observed by law enforcement, for example. Mm. It doesn't make them disappear. It just dramatically reduces their influence on people who might have otherwise been sitting on the fringe not knowing which way to swing. Yeah. You know, as we've said, this issue has been extremely, extremely polarizing here in the United States. In fact, you yourself received death threats over exercising your own free speech around this topic. And and feel free to talk about that as much or as little as you wish. But uh, the question is, how can we have a reasoned debate about these issues? You know, how do we, you know, how do we get ourselves in the right headspace to rationally analyze, uh, you know, this notion of deplatforming, for example? So, I mean, the death threat one was an interesting example for many reasons. So I I had shared something relating to to Parler, I think. uh, And it was a very non-opinionated tweet it's like you know here is what is presently happening kind of thing and and someone with a fairly new twitter account sent uh sent a tweet to me along the lines of you know you better look out you know we're going to come we're going to fly over there and get you and and i thought that was quite funny so i replied to them (laughs) along along the lines of you know mate you'd uh it's going to be hard in covid times to fly over here and get me and you know in my mind i'm thinking well what if they did well the They'd have to go to hotel quarantine for two weeks, and then I'd probably cool off, you know, like in hotel <laughs> right. quarantine. But anyway, then this individual, um, yeah, sent me a DM, which which was quite explicit in in terms of the, the death threat. And it was it was along the lines of, you know, I, I hope your physical security is good. We're going to send people over with a rope. Um, mm. And yeah, look, I, honestly, I didn't take any of that seriously at all because you know, uh, a yeah, my physical security is good, <laughs> but mm. but but b this was just some rando on the internet who was obviously a, a, a pissed off American, and I'm on the other side of the world, so good luck with that. But but what was interesting with that one is I did report it to Twitter, uh, which is the right thing to do when these things happen, and mm-hmm. it, it took a couple of weeks, but they they did actually kill the account. And in fact, I tweeted uh, probably only a few days ago now, I tweeted a screen cap of Twitter's uh, message to me. I, I didn't name the individual. I don't need to sort of make things any worse, but right, that, that right. account had been suspended. So it's, it's interesting that Twitter did take action, which is really the heart of a lot of this debate around are platforms taking enough action uh, against threatening sorts of behavior. And this was a good example of that. Now, of course, in, in tweeting that, I then got all these other people pop up and say, well, how come the death threats that they get <laughs> don't result mm. in people being banned? And, and I honestly don't mm. have a good answer for that. But look, to, to be honest, I put that down more to anonymous people on the internet say stupid stuff. Yeah, and I probably buried the lead with the with the, 
the death threat thing. But in your in your mind, do you, what did you know? How do you get in the right headspace for this? How, how do how do we as a society when step back enough or look at this? How can we kind of train ourselves to look at this at the facts and look at the rationality of this? You know, and and you know, kind of back away from the emotional parts of this. How how do we how do we deal with these sorts of things in a, in a rational way? My feeling is you've got to be able to see other people's viewpoints in this. You've got to be able to see their perspectives. Uh, and and as look, I would probably be much more aligned with the Silicon Valley mentality, you know, left-leaning progressive folks in, in terms of my own political and life views. But I, I think it's really sort of important to, to try and, and see it from this other side as well. I mean, this is part of the reason I've, I've kept the, the Gab account there and I do flick through and I have a read of, of what's said. And a lot of it doesn't align with, with my views, but I think it's really important to understand you know, where are these people coming from? Why, why do they feel that way? Mm, mm-hmm. Now, yeah, I could call that empathy if you like, but that sort of helped me understand a lot more about, about where these folks are coming from. And I think then we've also got to recognize, as I've said a few times now, viewpoints which align to either end of the extreme in any debate are almost certainly the wrong ones. So mm-hmm. the idea that anyone can say anything or the idea that we should just let free enterprise go and nuke whatever account they want and, and effectively uh, kill voices, which might be otherwise legal, but just don't align with the masses on their platform is, is not healthy either. And I, I just feel that unless we can sort of start from that point, it's very, very hard to have dialogue particularly when people get very, very emotionally invested in the outcomes. Yeah, in my head, I've always, you know, <laughs> I kind of imagine this world where we have a political exchange program where, <laughs> where you know, we, we extract one person each from some, you know, deep blue area and some deep red area and just swap them for six months and just, just let them, <laughs> you know, live in someone else's environment for six months and just kind of get it, you know, because I, I really think that, it, you know, the social media part of it is a lot of it, but we've actually, you know, becoming geographically, at least in the U.S., kind of geographically polarized as well. And, you know, there's this kind of urban, you know, deep blue areas, and then there's these rural areas. And I think that we don't, we don't mix enough. We don't, we don't socialize enough. And, you know, in, in like meat spaces, we like, you know, in, in the real world. And, and I think that we lose, you know, because the echo chambers just make it worse. But we just lose the ability to walk around in someone else's shoes, to get someone else's perspective. And I, that makes it that all that much harder. Well, it's, it's sort of a, a difficult time in the world at the moment to be able to make this suggestion. But, but honestly, like travel is, is the thing mm-hmm. that, that I think has, has most expanded my horizons. And I, I don't oh, mean travel yeah, to me another too. state. You know, like you've got to get out and and see the world. And I appreciate that's also a bit of a privileged position because travel at at the best of times wasn't cheap either. Mm -hmm. But the opportunity to have exposure to completely different parts of the world uh, helps you understand a lot of other perspectives, but also helps give you a sense of how the rest of the world views where you're from. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I find it really interesting. I'm, um, I'm engaged for Norwegian, and she said it's, it's really funny how consistently the front pages of the Norwegian newspapers talk about shark attacks in Australia. like okay i know that that there is this view in other parts of the world but it's just like time and time and time again the front page of the norwegian newspaper is like yeah man eaten by shark off beach in australia and and here it's just like yeah someone got bitten you know he he was fine he was fine (laughs) she walk it off I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and that is, you know, I've always loved travel. I've, I've been to 31 or 32 countries and six continents at this point, but you know, without, until you get outside the United States and actually it, and live in, in, in different areas, it, it's, it's really hard to, to get that perspective. And I, I, just, I don't, I couldn't agree more. I, okay. Well, one more question and, uh, and I'll let you go. Where do you, where do you think we go from here? Like what, 
what do you think the future of free speech looks like for the next few years? I mean, are these, these going to have effects? Are we going to see, and I don't necessarily mean predict legislation in the United States, but I mean, it, it kind of as a culture, what do you, uh, we had some tipping points here. And, you know, maybe if you could, ma- you know, wave your magic wand, you know, what changes would you make? Like if you could, if you could change a couple things about the way things work, you know, what, what would you do? You know, it's, it's really hard to pick, I think, on where we're actually going to go because so much of, of even what's just happened over the last, geez, even the last few weeks, let alone the last few oh, years, yeah. it was yeah. very hard to see coming. Well, I, I guess to, to answer it in, in the reverse, what I wouldn't like to see is a situation where social media platforms with influence do isolate people to one side or the other. And again, when I, when I look at Gab, even if I just go into like the Explore on Gab at the moment, so it's not just people that I was forced to follow, but I mm. see other people as well. It is a very, very politically aligned platform. Now, if, if, if Gab becomes your place where you share your things and you absorb your information, you are going to end up with a very isolated view of the world. And I, I suggest to a lesser extent, but still to some extent, if it's only Twitter, and particularly if you have people getting off Twitter and getting off Facebook and going to this other platform, then you're going to end up with a very skewed view of the world as well. And I, I just can't imagine that in any way that is a healthy situation to have. So I, I really mm. hope that we we get to have platforms where everyone feels welcome, regardless of their views, but we still, within those platforms, need to have community standards and moderation to some extent. I think that our big challenge remains, how do we define what that is and how do we define who's responsible for maintaining it? Yeah. Well, Troy, this was a fascinating discussion I was hoping it would be. And it, it's so great to get you know your perspective, not just because you're from someone from outside the United States, but because you've been around so many other places as well. And you've got some, some real experience to bring to this uh, conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I want to really give a special thanks to Troy for coming on the show and discussing this. Obviously, while he's taken in stride because of his vocal opinion on this, his life was threatened, which I I can't comprehend. And I hope that we can figure out ways to disagree without being disagreeable and, you know, realize that we may disagree with someone and that doesn't make them a mortal enemy. So uh, special thanks to Troy for coming on. Uh, I've got a link in the show notes to, to the blog that I found that that triggered me reaching out to him. And even though we kind of cover a lot of the same things that he covers in the video portion of the blog, he has, uh, gosh, it must be at least a dozen links to related articles that are, are very interesting. So you might, for no other reason, want to check out his weekly update 226 on troyhunt.com and just look at the links there. There's a lot of other interesting articles. I don't, I forget if you link to this particular one, but it's also, you know, a good Wikipedia article on, free speech in the United States and what the, what exceptions there are to that, because there are exceptions and it's, there's the, you know, yelling fire in a crowded theater, but there's a lot of others. Free speech is not as free as it's often portrayed to be as Troy, uh, as Troy made clear. And also since, uh, since I'm not going to be able to get to kind of going over the listener survey results until next week, anyway, I thought, uh, let's, I'll leave the survey open for one more week. So <laughs> If you haven't done it yet, now is a good time. Now is your only time to do it. I will definitely be cutting it off probably probably on uh, Friday of next week. So you officially have until February 12th to fill out the survey. Again, that's bit.ly slash firewalls dash survey dash 2021. I'm going to do this once a year, uh, but your window is closing for this year. And I really, really would love to get your feedback. 
uh, on the podcast so I can make it as uh, broadly appealing as possible. And if you've got some great ideas for things I can add to the podcast, I want to hear those too. Again, that link is in the show notes. And if you are a patron, you will know that because I will have already sent you the show notes by the time this podcast airs. All right, that's it. Thanks, everybody. Tune in next week for a new show. There's still plenty of stuff to talk about. Those vaccines are finally starting to roll out and uh, supply is really kicking in. So, man, make sure you figure out how, how to get that vaccine. Sign up, get on mailing list, get on the phone call list, whatever it takes. Make sure you know when your place in line has got to pop up and be ready to get that vaccine when it comes out. I really, really want to get back to traveling. Want to get out and, and see the world again. And to do that, we got to get we got to knock this sucker down. So please stay safe, everybody. Wear those masks when you go out. Avoid public gatherings. Get tested when you need to. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>